I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. We've got a rather fascinating edition of the show today. It's a previously unpublished conversation with John D. Wilsey, Associate Professor of Church History and Philosophy at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. A while back, John wrote a book entitled God's Cold Warrior. The Life and Faith of John Foster Dulles. Those who have listened to Parallax Views for some time now uh, will, of course, be aware of John Foster Dulles as well as his brother, uh, Alan Dulles. John Foster Dulles served as a Secretary of State. He was a diplomat during the Cold War, and uh, he influenced American foreign policy greatly. And his brother, of course, served as a director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Previous Parallax Views guests such as Greg Polgrain and Stephen Kinzer have written criticisms of the Dulles brothers. Uh, John D. Wilsey uh, holds some of those criticisms. However, he takes a bit of a different perspective on John Foster Dulles as his book is a religious biography of the man looking at the ways in which Protestant liberalism influenced John Foster Dulles's thought on issues like diplomacy and international relations. Those looking for a conversation that is just a sort of polemical uh, attack on Dulles may be disappointed uh, by this 
episode, it's really not about that. Instead, we're delving into the ways in which Dulles approached the Cold War and how religion played a role in that. I think it's a fascinating conversation, regardless of your political orientation. So, with that in mind, let's get right to it with John D. Wilsey, author of God's Cold Warrior, The Life and Faith of John Foster Dulles, and my apologies to John D. Wilsey for this conversation coming out so late. Uh, it had previously been thought to be lost, but I recently was able to rediscover it. And I am so happy that you, the listener, are now able to hear it. Welcome to Parallax Views. John D. Wilsey, author of God's Cold Warrior, The Life and Faith of John Foster Dulles. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. And I wanted to have you on because I found this new book uh, very interesting, and I think it provided a different perspective on John Foster Dulles. But before we get into that, maybe you could tell my listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure, yeah. Uh, well, I uh, I teach at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and um, you know, it might sound a little strange for a Baptist um, church historian to be interested in a Presbyterian like John Foster Dulles, but um, I'm interested mainly, and most of my work is in uh, nationalism and its um, its intersection with uh, Protestant theology. So, uh, my interest in Dulles stems from my interest in research on American exceptionalism, Christian nationalism in America and um, how those ideas draw from Protestant theology, sometimes in ways that are harmful, some ways, sometimes, in, sorry, sometimes in ways that, you know, are helpful as well. Um, so I've been researching on nationalism for uh, uh, 15 years or something like that now, it seems like, I guess. And um, uh, it's, a, it's a very stimulating, uh, very stimulating idea. And um, I don't see, I don't see a time when I would, uh, you know, lose interest in it. It's really, it's really fascinating. So for listeners that may be unfamiliar or maybe on the younger side, I think there may be some listeners that aren't familiar with the name John Foster Dulles. Uh, in some ways, I, I think he's been uh, maybe forgotten by some. Maybe you could tell us who he yeah. is and why we don't hear much about him. Yeah, that's, that's great. I think you're right. I think a lot of people... You know, um, younger folks, really not even folks that are that all that young. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, so people in my generation don't really know who he is for, for the most part. Um, I was telling my mom early in the project uh, when I was proposing it that I wanted to write a book on John Foster Dulles. And I was explaining to her, you know, who he was. She said, I know who he is. <laughs> <laughs> which was funny because I think people of her generation, you know, she was born in 1942. She'd kill me if she knew that I told you that. Um, people of her age do remember him. 
And I'll tell you another funny story, if not funny, but it's very interesting. It's very telling. I have a student who is a pastor and in his church, there's a, a gentleman in his church, kind of a pillar in the church. He's in his early nineties and he flew in world war II. He flew in the Korean war and was in, I think he was a Colonel in the air force when he retired in the, in the fifties. And uh, my student was telling uh, this gentleman about, about my book on John Foster Dulles. And his response was, ah, Mr. Dulles, which I thought was telling because that is exactly how most people would have referred to him back in the, in the 50s, especially Mr. Dulles. And that's the way he immediately responded. So he obviously knew a lot about him, but most people don't. You know, most people would associate that name with you know, maybe, maybe the, uh, the airport in Washington maybe his more famous brother, you know, who kind of had this exotic career as the uh, head of the CIA during the 1950s. The uh, Time magazine called him America's spy master. So he kind of has, you know, something of a, a little bit more exoticism about him. But, but people don't remember John Foster Dulles as much. And I think part of the reason for that is because he, um, his reputation has been sullied uh, since his death in 1959. Uh, I think largely because of the failures of American foreign policy in uh, Southeast Asia, particularly, um, that, uh, you know, he's very closely associated with. I think he also represents to a lot of Americans today um, a, uh, you know, a posture that America took towards the world and towards um, the Soviet Union and communist China that, um, you know, kind of fell out of favor after, you know, once you get into the 70s and with detente, especially. So, you know, those are just some theories that I have about that. But um, with, the, with the falling of his reputation, I think he can also, people have lost interest in him more generally. And of course, I, I think he would be most known for serving as the United States uh, Secretary of State under President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Right. Yeah. And he served in that role from 1953 until his shortly before his death in 1959, he um, he resigned as Secretary of State in uh, in April of 59, and he he was dead by the end of May. So he he worked pretty much right up to uh, to his last days as Secretary of State. And he had every intention of uh, filling out Eisenhower's tenure as Secretary of State as well. He didn't he didn't intend on retiring. Um, he believed he was a fairly young man when he was 70, 71 years old. He was still quite vigorous. Uh, he was still someone that uh, loved sailing and uh, loved um, early morning uh, dives into the uh, ice cold, frigid water of, uh, you know, Lake Ontario and those kinds of things, even at, uh, even at 70, 71 years old. Now, one thing that interests me about this book is when I've looked into John Foster Dulles, I, I probably have my own biases. I'm probably closer to someone like Stephen Kinzer, who has a very, very critical view yeah. of John Foster Dulles. Yeah. Uh, but what's interesting about your book is I'm not sure you can really categorize it as being uh, polemical. I think you can get uh, something out of this book regardless of your view on Dulles politically. Could you comment on that? Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I do because Stephen Kinzer's book, The Brothers, uh, that was actually my my really first introduction to John Foster Dulles um, for serious consideration. Of course, I 
known about Dulles since I was a history major in college and read things about him, but I had never read a book about him before. 2013, which is when that book came out and I got it when I was writing a chapter about Dulles in American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion, which was a, a book I wrote in 2015. Um, but I appreciate that perspective. Uh, I have been um, criticized for being an apologist for a war criminal. <laughs> I, I actually, I know the exact internet posting that you're talking yeah, about. So I saw that recently. I thought, hey, I've arrived. <laughs> I've never been, I've never, I've been called a lot of things. I've never been called that. But, um, you know, for someone like yourself, who may be more sympathetic with Kinzer's treatment, for you to say, you know, there's something of value here, even for someone who's very critical of Dulles. And, and you know, um, I do have some, some disagreements with Kinzer's methodology, but, um, but overall, you know, if, if, you know, someone like John Foster Dulles is, is, is readily critiquable. And there's plenty there uh, to, to criticize, plenty there to critique. And we would probably not disagree on many of the critiques that, you know, you have, because I think I would share them. But my point in writing the book was not to offer yet another critique, because there are a lot of book-length critiques of, of John Foster Dulles, as well as, uh, you know, his, his family, his, his brother especially, and also his sister, uh, Eleanor Lansing Dulles. Um, the historiography since the early 70s on Dulles has been uh, almost uniformly critical with maybe one or, or maybe two exceptions that I can think of. So I, I thought that in the historiography, the historiography needed a treatment of Dulles that looked at his life from a different angle, his religion, and how his religion shaped him, how it shaped his, intellect, his intellectual development, how it shaped his moral development, his outlook on the world. And, you know, in that regard, you know, what kind of a diplomat he was going to be during the time that he was America's chief diplomat during the 50s. Because Dulles is not only a part of that sort of um, civil religious awakening that occurs in the 50s, but he's also a product of it. So to, to understand how that is, we have to come to grips with his religious and moral and intellectual development. And so that's the point of the book. The point of the book is not ostensibly to write a, a sympathetic biography, although I will admit that it, it probably is a sympathetic biography. It's more to sort of um, understand, you know, where, where these ideas come from that he champions. His, his you know, doctrines like massive retaliation, uh, the uh, foreign policy doctrine of new look, which of course he's the chief you know, proponent of and, and really originator of that. Where do these things come from? Uh, what, are the, what are the moral and intellectual and religious sources of these things? That's what I'm trying to get at. And I just wanted to add to that. I think you do take a, a critical look at Dulles in your previous book, American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion. I know Andrew Basevich uh, wrote a review recently that was a bit critical of your book saying, well, you know, Wilsey doesn't cover uh, really the height of uh, Dulles's career uh, when he's Secretary of State as much. But I think what you're doing with this book is more 
uh, a religious biography and sort of looking at how religion shaped uh, the young man when he would eventually become secretary of state. Is that a correct interpretation? Yes, that is correct. That is correct. So in regards to Dulles and his upbringing, what can you tell my listeners about his background? He comes from immense privilege and also a sort of religious background, but it's not exactly um, necessarily as conservative as one would think. That's right. That's right. He, um, he, he, on the, you know, he, on the one hand, Dulles comes from privilege. Uh, his mother's father had been secretary of state under Benjamin Harrison and was a, um, a kind of an internationally known uh, attorney. He had also, this was John uh, Watson Foster, um, John Foster Dulles's grandfather and his namesake. Um, he, he was, um, you know, kind of served as an independent contracting diplomat for the Chinese government in the negotiating of the Treaty of Shimonoseki in 1895. Uh, in addition to, you know, having been a representative at the uh, Second Hague Conference in 1907, when he took he took his grandson John Foster with him when he when John Foster was a junior in college he was only 19 years old so John Watson Foster was a very prominent international diplomat you know internationally known diplomat I should say uh, in the beginning of the 20th century so he does come from privilege in that sense but then on his father's side the Dallas side they were not privileged they were a middling income family and his father Alan Macy was a pastor. Uh, he was a Presbyterian minister. He was pastor of uh, uh, a, pa a church in Detroit. And then shortly after he was, uh, John Foster was born, they moved to Watertown, New York, where he took up the pastorate of uh, the first Presbyterian church of Watertown, New York. And he served in that pastorate for 17 years. And then he went to become a professor. He took the, uh, he took the uh, professorship of theism and apologetics at Auburn Theological Seminary in Auburn, New York in 1904. So on that, in that sense, he was not from privilege because, you know, the Dulleses were not this, this wealthy um, family from, you know, that kind of hailed from the centers of power like the Fosters indeed were. Now, having said that, I'll, I'll, I'll mention too that they did, they did have a lot of the trappings of privilege. Um, for example, um, uh, John Watson Foster, his grandfather, um, you know, built something of a family compound on the Lake Ontario shore. Beautiful place. I've been been up there to see uh, the the houses that uh, grandfather Foster had, and and uh, also his uncle Robert Lansing had, and um, uh, another small house that Eleanor Lansing Dulles later purchased, and they're all sort of right there together. There's about four houses that members of the Dulles and Foster families all owned clustered together on the Ontario shore that they would spend the summers every summer. They would go out there in May and they would spend the entire summer all the way to September, you know, on the Ontario shore. That's, that's definitely, uh, that's definitely nice and, and not something that I, I enjoy with my family. So privilege is something I think that is a word that can be used to describe Dulles's background, but then it's also mitigated by the fact that Alan Macy Dulles um, did not, he did not come from means. 
there's another paradox there that it's not really a paradox. I guess it's an interesting uh, sort of mixture of, of backgrounds. The Dulles family were, were a family of theologians, of ministers, and missionaries. The Foster family on his mother's side, they were diplomats. So Robert Lansing was John Foster's uncle. He was Secretary of State under Wilson. And then, of course, John Watson, who I mentioned a second ago, was also a Secretary of State. So Dulles grew up in, a, in, a, in kind of one world that was very provincial, that of North Country, New York, um, which, you know, he, he received a, a good education, but he was a product of, the, of, of public education, which was good. Um, it was not, he didn't go to, you know, a boys boarding school, some kind of elite institution. He, he was educated in, in that provincial setting. He came, came of age in that provincial setting. But then he also came of age uh, in Washington, D.C., because he was very close with his grandparents, spent very much time in Washington, D.C. with his grandparents. His grandfather was like a second father to him. And his uncle, he was not as close with his uncle, but still, you know, still pretty close with his uncle. And his uncle helped him in his early career as a, an attorney at Sullivan and Cromwell. So I guess all that to say that his background is uh, he has deep ties, you know, in the church, the Presbyterian church, and also very deep ties in Washington society, as well as in um, the legal and diplomatic arenas. Uh, interesting, very interesting background in that regard and very unique, very unique. You know, First Presbyterian Church of Watertown, I visited that church when I was doing my research in the fall of 2017. And it's still their great boast that they're the only church in America uh, where you know two secretaries of state and a CIA director came out of that church. <laughs> and I guess that's right. I mean, I don't know of another church where that, where that happened, but they're very, very proud of that even to this day. So earlier you mentioned uh, the awakening, the sort of civil religious awakening. Could you explain that a bit more and the sort of within the context of how it shaped Dulles? Because I think we're all shaped by the sort of culture and forces around us. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the period after World War II, um, with the emergence of the Cold War in 1947, 1948, and Dulles is a contributor to this, the idea that communism was monolithic. You, you cut out there for a second. Could you could you start oh, at the beginning? I'm sorry. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? OK. Yes. Okay. So in the post-war period with the emergence of the Cold War, the idea that the Soviet Union represented a form of communism that was monolithic, monolithic directed from Moscow on some kind of an international crusade to bring the entire world under this one Soviet style communism, which was godless. You know, that was, that was what Dulles said. And that's what a lot of, you know, most Americans kind of associated communism with godlessness and not just godlessness, but, but antipathy towards Christianity and towards the church and towards religion in general. This was one motivating factor, right? Uh, one sort of impetus behind a civil religious awakening that occurs in the 50s. So a couple of things that are representative of that. It's in 1954, for example, that uh, 
that under God, the phrase under God is added to the Pledge of Allegiance. And in 1956, um, the United States adopted In God We Trust as its national motto. In order to distinguish the United States from the Soviet Union in the Cold War context as you know, the champion of religion, uh, even the champion of Christianity, almost like a Christian nation, uh, over and against this, this godless, enslaving, expansionistic, militaristic, goose-stepping kind of you know, uh, nemesis that the United States had in that, in that conflict. And Dulles is both a product of that and he's a shaper of that. Um, he, he always believed that the United States was a Christian nation. But there is, there is a Dulles of the 30s and 40s that is distinguishable from the Dulles of the 50s. And uh, that's, you know, we see that in some of the, some of the literature that's come out. Um, I'm thinking about Andrew Preston's uh, Sword of the Spirit and Shield of Faith, uh, where he, he draws those, so demonstrates those distinctions between, you know, Foster and those different kinds of periods. And then a book length treatment called The Transformation of John Foster Dulles by Mark Toulouse, where he explores that, that difference, that distinction. What for you are the biggest distinctions between those two uh, sort of eras of Dulles? Yep. So the two, I'll, I'll, I'll bullet down to two things. One is the period of the 30s and 40s is very different from the period of the 50s. So the period, as you just said, you know, to know a person's thinking, you have to know the context, you have to know the world in which that person is, is, is living in. So the world of the 30s and the world of the 40s is, is witnessing this titanic conflict between the allies and the fascists represented by Germany, Japan, and, and Italy. So, so Dulles in that period, he wants to defeat these great threats to world peace and also see a world order take shape that was based upon um, international cooperation above all that would be led by the great powers that emerged out of the Second World War, including Russia, you know, including the Soviet Union, because we were allies with the Soviet Union. But then by the 50s, you see Dulles not no longer emphasize international cooperation with the, you know, with the Soviets as a partner. Now you see that this Dulles is, is almost nationalistic, right? And he's casting the Soviet Union as the enemy uh, that the United States and its allies are going to be directly opposed to and uh, also prepared to respond in a massive way against any kind of Soviet aggression uh, in the world. So, so yeah, go ahead. I was going to add, so within this Cold War period, he's really animated, and I think there's multiple animating factors, but I think one of the animating factors that you've touched upon in your writing is a sort of Manichaeism. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Dulles does, is not very good at seeing moral nuance in international diplomacy. He, he wasn't good at it in the 30s and 40s. I mean, he was better at it, I guess, in the 30s, but then that sort of devolved into almost defending Germany, Japan, and, and Italy. In the 30s, in his writing, he would, you know, between 1934 and 
37, almost as late as 39, you, you see Dulles, you know, flirt with defending the Germans, Italians, and the, and the Japanese for their actions. In fact, it's, it's so, um, it, you know, it's so explicit that both the German, or all three of them, the German, the Italian, and the Japanese ambassadors to the United States write to Dulles thanking him for how he was sort of taking up for their cause. That's shocking. <laughs> so, but, but he does, but once World War II gets underway, once, once in 1940, 41, Dulles has a change of heart. He, he does see the Nazis, the Japanese, the Italians as being, you know, uh, the forces of demonic evil and the uh, United States and its allies being the forces of righteousness and justice. And then he just really just transfers. He never really stops fighting a war between light and darkness, between cosmic good and evil. He simply just changes enemies, right? So by, the, by 1946, he's convinced that the Soviets represent, uh, you know, the forces of, uh, of darkness and, um, and of, uh, of evil in the world. And that only is going to accelerate by the time he gets to 1950 and 51. What's interesting at the same time, though, is he doesn't want preemptive war. In fact, as you point out, he pushes back against that. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's true. What he wants is to establish collective security arrangements all over the world um, in which the Soviets would know that if they were to strike anywhere in the world, um, that the United States and its allies would be able to retaliate in means of their own choosing and in places of their own choosing to such an extent that it wouldn't be worth it. So in regards to what you said earlier, that in a way he could be seen as, you know, maybe a Christian nationalist. I think when people hear that term, uh, they may be prone to think of, uh, you know, Donald Trump and, and maybe Trump's base. But I, I don't think that what we think of as a Christian nationalist in the 21st century is really what Dulles was. No, no. Christian nationalism is a, a term that people have been using a lot uh, in the last several months, especially culminating in January. But Christian nationalism is a very old idea. It goes back to, I mean, in, American, in an American context, you can trace it all the way back to 1630 with the Puritans, the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It takes Christian nationalism, American exceptionalism, these things take shape around the contours of their historical contexts. Right. So we live in a particular historical context now in which Christian nationalism is, is, is sort of shaping itself around those contours. And it really has been for the last 40 or 50 years since the 70s. Um, but it's not the same kind of thing as, you know, the Christian nationalism that John Foster Dulles represents. John Foster Dulles represents a Christian nationalism that emerges during World War One and the progressive period. So that's a that's a kind of nationalism that arises really from the left. Protestant liberalism, I think, is the term that has been used. That's right. That's right. Protestant liberalism and li Protestant liberalism. We wouldn't we're not using that term in a pejorative way or in an insulting way. Um, theological Protestant theological liberalism is a brand of Protestant, you know, um, um, theological uh, discourse, if you will arising out of uh, higher, criti higher critical methods, uh, evolution, evolutionary thought, 
and the ideas of, uh, of Kant um, in the 18th and 19th centuries. So Dulles, Dulles is a, is a uh, you know, he, he grows up in that milieu. His father was a liberal and Dulles was a liberal in that, and when I mean, what I say, when I, when I, when I mean, when I say he was a liberal, I mean this, that for Dulles and for the liberals in general in America, they are much less concerned with theological doctrines, dogmas, like the inerrancy of scripture, the hypostatic union, you know, the Trinity, the virgin birth. They, they're not really interested in that at all. They're interested in the ethical mores of the faith. They're interested in the application of Jesus's ethic. Um, what, what Dulles called the moral law. That's what Dulles was mostly interested in. He didn't see Christianity so much as a set of abstractions. He saw Christianity as an operative faith and that it was useless if it was not operative. And by that he meant through ethics. That's consistent with liberalism. So when I, when I say that he was a liberal, you know, of course I don't mean that pejoratively, I mean that uh, descriptively. And Christian nationalism in the progressive period that we see from World War I, definitely I would say through to, you know, the 50s, at least to the 50s, is informed and shaped mainly from the left, from people like Edward L.R. Elston, who was the, the past, was Eisenhower's pastor. He was the pastor of National Presbyterian Church. He, he baptized Dwight Eisenhower um, while he was in office, first president ever to be baptized in office. Edward L.R. Elston was, was a liberal, right? Um, someone like, um, you know, Walter Rauschenbusch, who gave us the social gospel. Now, through Rauschenbusch, the emphasis placed upon social action is translated in the World War I period in the 20s as being that the United States was going to be the paragon of demonstrating how Christian nations act, right? And that World War I would be a war for civilization, a Christian civilization. And Woodrow Wilson, um, you know, he was going to be the, what was he? He was a Presbyterian. He was a liberal. Um, his high-minded uh, idealism that he wanted to articulate through the, the, the 14 points and through the uh, Versailles Conference, which of course was a failure. All of these things are motivated by the principle of um, liberal, liberal Protestant orthodoxy, but also um, this idea of Christian nationalism. Woodrow Wilson said, you know, he called, called the United States a messianic nation, he said that the United States was the hope of the world said that the United States was uh, indispensable to the peace of the world. That kind of language is deeply Christian nationalistic, but it's not, it doesn't come from fundamentalism. It doesn't come from hard right Christianity like it does now, right? So since the late seventies, Christian nationalism has really emerged from the right. But in the beginning of the 20th century through the middle of the 20th, 20th century, it really was propagated on the left. Now we've of course had political figures, uh, that had religious beliefs, you know, I, I think of uh, George Kennan, who was uh, a Protestant, but, you know, religion didn't necessarily play a significant role in yeah. Kennan and the way he saw foreign policy. How is Dulles different from someone like Kennan? Are there examples that you can give of how religion uh, directly influences his political thinking? The biggest example that I point to in the book, and this is almost the one that takes up all the oxygen in the room, is Dulles's view 
on the moral law, what he called the moral law. I referenced it a second ago. From this conception of, you know, um, of, of normative ethics that stems from a metaphysic, an idea, a commitment to the idea that God created the world and created a moral system into the world, right? So, so for Dulles, the moral law is not simply an ethical abstraction or a set of do's and don'ts or a moral vision for the world. It's more than that. It's, it's, it's literally built into the systems of nature, right? So you can observe the moral law actually happen in front of your eyes um, in nature. That's why he loved, he loved to be out in nature. He loved to sail. He loved to fish. He, he owned an island out in Lake Ontario, Maine Duck Island. And he would talk about, he would teach his kids. His kids would re remember years later about the, le the moral lessons that he would kind of give them in nature. One of the ones that, that Avery Dulles, the, the great American Catholic theologian that was his son, he liked to tell the story about how Dulles would point to a tree that had some dead, dead deadness in it. And he would say, you see, the tree is suffering from a lack of light on this side of the tree. And so with the lack of light, it's dying. And he would carve away with his pen knife at the, at the deadness and show his kids, you know, the deadness in the tree. And then he would say, Jesus is the light of the world and light is what gives life. Darkness is what breeds death. And this tree is suffering from a lack of light and, and so forth and so on. And that's just one small example. He would also look at examples on you know, sailing through storms and things, you know, that you, you have to go with the storm. You can't fight against the forces of nature because if you fight against the forces of nature, those forces are just going to crush you. That same principle is, is, is applicable to storms and diplomacy and storms in relationships with other nations. And you can apply sort of the same principles of sailing through a storm on Lake Ontario that you can in diplomacy. This is, you know, an example of how Dulles saw this connection between, you know, the, the created order as a moral system and then the moral law that we're all answerable to because God is the one that made the world. So in the moral law, in the Cold War, starting in about 1950-51, Dulles would say, the Soviet Union is godless. The Soviet Union is committed to uh, destruction of all who stand for the moral law. And they're opposed to the moral law. Therefore, they have set themselves against the moral law. But the United States and its allies, we stand and champion the moral law, and we will contend for the moral law. And for that reason, the Soviets have no hope of ever winning because you can't stand against the forces of God. You can't stand against the created order that he has established. Now, that kind of thinking, Kennan criticized because he believed that that was reckless, you know, sort of basing diplomacy in religious terms was too Manichaean, was too us versus them, and could lead to unintended consequences like, you know, preemptive war or accidental nuclear war or just simply a, a, a conflagration that was localized that got out of, got out of hand. So Kennan thought that kind of thinking was very dangerous. But, but nevertheless, um, that's the kind of language that, that Dulles used all through the 50s.
And what's interesting is I want to stick on that mortal law bit because that seems to be where you see the consistency of Dulles in regards to uh, his diplomatic career. You know, it's all centered in this idea of moral law as the center of diplomacy. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so once once Dulles perceives a threat to the world order, you know, emanating from the Soviet Union, you know, he um, he doesn't give up on his vision for international cooperation. But he does think that that vision has to be put off for a little while. It needs to be delayed until the threat emanating from Soviet communism can be can be neutralized. So he views Soviet communism as a very unique exis- existential threat. Oh, absolutely. He thinks it's the greatest threat the United States has ever faced in its history. And he also thinks that, you know, in some way, the United States has been raised up by God for such a time as this. I mean, his his <laughs> his his theological framework is as uh, as absolute as it gets, right? He doesn't have a lot of nuance in the way he thinks about it. Now he does. He, it's it's wrong to think that Dulles believes that communism is this is this you know um, monolithic threat. He does. For example, he, he sees that there's divisions between China and the Soviet Union. He sees those differences between, you know, the Yugoslav communists under Tito and, you know, how, how they're kind of opposed to Soviet communism. But, but still, he thinks that communism, no matter what its form, is an unmitigated bad thing um, for the world and an enslaving force and something that absolutely must be resisted, um, not just for political or economic reasons, but also for moral and religious reasons in other words it's not just an existential threat to the u.s but just the world uh, all of civilization yeah absolutely he'd say that again and again and again in his in his rhetoric as secretary of state he would say things like it is immoral for the united states to simply leave quote quote unquote 800 million enslaved people um, under communism this is his critique of containment and his emphasis on the need for rollback. That was new look was predicated on that critique of Truman's idea of contain Kennan's really idea of containment, where you kind of leave, you know, let, let the Soviets and the communist world kind of exist where they are, but keep them contained where they are. Dulles said, no, that's immoral. It's wrong for the United States to leave 800 million people enslaved and captive to communism. Uh, to their fate. That's just wrong. We have to take steps to uh, to roll back communism and liberate those people. That's the moral thing to do. And we're the only ones that can do it. What for Dulles are the main weapons that can be used to fight what he sees as this existential threat of Soviet communism? Now, Dulles, Dulles consistently said that this, this war, this confrontation with the Soviets, ultimately is not going to be fought with material weapons. It's going to be fought with spiritual weapons. By that, he meant, uh, for example, the churches of, the, of America and of Britain and of the Christian world. They have 
a singular role to play in the Cold War. Uh, the, the churches are not to, you know, get involved in policy making. That goes against separation of church and state, right? But, but the churches are to form the consciences of um, policymakers. The churches have a prophetic role uh, to raise their voices in protest against communist actions in the world. Um, so they have a very important role. They have an indispensable role. And the churches are going to, in, you know, in raising their voice against Soviet tyranny, are going to be exercising, you know, spiritual weapons in their criticisms. Another thing is that um, in, in articulating the meaning of the moral law and the place of the nations in the moral law was another way in which we're going to win the Cold War. But then in the, on the material side, Dulles um, believed that conventional weaponry was, you know, certainly useful. He also believed nuclear weapons were useful. Um, so, so during some of the great crises in, um, you know, in the 50s, um, especially, say, the, uh, um, for example, the Suez crisis, um, you know, nuclear weapons were, he wasn't an advocate of using nuclear weapons, but nuclear weapons were certainly on the table. When, the, when Dien Bien Phu fell, uh, Dulles was, um, you know, he wasn't completely against uh, the use of nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons on, in favor of the French and against the North Vietnamese. Um, during, the, uh, uh, during the crisis with the Chinese over um, Quay Moy and Matsu, uh, twice, in first in 1954, then again in 1958, uh, the use of nuclear weapons. Dulles was not willing to take that off the table. Eisenhower was much more reticent in the use in in thinking of the use of nuclear weapons. Although Eisenhower went through went through some uh, shifts himself in the use of nuclear weapons. He, he at one point in the early fifties said that nuclear weapons were really nothing more than just like you know you'd use it like any other conventional weapon, like a bullet. Um. So Dulles did not. He didn't think you should take anything off the table, but he, he didn't think that ultimately this was going to be a war of armies and bombers and navies and nuclear weapons. He believed it was a really going to be ultimately a war of ideas. I think summing it all up in a lot of ways, what you conclude about Dulles is that he really believed that Americans had a divinely inspired mission to ensure this embrace across the world of moral law do you think there's ever times where religion maybe doesn't play as much of a factor in his thinking or maybe i guess what i'm trying to get at is is there ever uh dilemmas or paradoxes between his sort of protestant liberalism and his diplomatic career That's a very interesting question. I think that, I mean, Dulles is, is a, uh, I call him a bag of paradoxes. Uh, in my introduction, I list a, a sampling of paradoxes in his, in his life, his personal life, as well as his professional life. And so I, I definitely would say that if there's one thing that defines him, it is, it's paradox. It's what leads Richard Immerman, who was a, a fine Cold War and Dulles scholar, uh, to say that Dulles is a very elusive figure. It's very difficult 
to pin him down and to nail him down in, in a particular, you know, simplistic way, because he uh, he does he contradicts himself, and um, as soon as you 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 would expect that he would respond in one way, he responds another. What, here's an example of that: in 1956, simultaneous, roughly simultaneously with the Suez Crisis, you know, the Soviets invade Hungary to put down uh, an attempted uh, rebellion there, anti-communist rebellion. And in the Hungarian uh, resistance, where they were counting on American support, especially counting on Dulles to support them, because Dulles was on record with all of this rhetoric about rollback and liberation. And they were pretty convinced that the Americans would come in on their side, but Dulles backed off and, and refused to, uh, you know, to give them aid in any way, because he knew that it would, it would, it would, it could bring about World War III. And Dulles was not willing to fight World War III over the Hungarians. And that goes against so much of what he had already said over the past five or, or more years about the moral responsibility the United States had towards liberating those people who were captive under communism. So, so that's, that's an example. Another example is that um, in, in embracing sort of nationalistic ideas in the 50s, you know, and, and counting the Soviets out of the moral law and casting America as the, you know, paradigmatic figure, you know, illustrating the moral law. Many of his old friends from the 1940s and the 1930s who were, you know, in the federal council churches with him, who helped craft, you know, kind of a a moral order in the post-war world predicated upon international cooperation, they can actually confronted him in, in his own home in a, in a dinner they had and then, you know, retreating for, for drinks in his study for many hours in his house. What happened to you? Um, you, you used to be this um, advocate for uh, world peace and now it's all about massive retaliation and brinksmanship and all this other stuff. What, what's going on here with you, so to speak? And there, there, are, there are about seven um, of his old friends that were there, and, and three of them left records of, of their impressions of that conversation. And um, you don't have to go back and look exactly who, who they were. I cover it in the book, but... Um, you know th those impressions ranged from, you know, kind of kind of understanding his 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 approach, his role. He was no longer just a a figure with the Federal Council of Churches, sort of a, you know, a, a public intellectual. He was no longer that. He was Secretary of State with great responsibility. He was a foreign policymaker. He he didn't have the the luxury of being able to sit in his in his armchair, you know, surrounded by his uh, books in a smoke filled room and just you know, like ruminate on world affairs. He didn't have that luxury anymore. He had to, he had to make policy now. So, so some said that others, others were still very critical of him and didn't let him off the hook at all. But that is also an example of how Dulles is a, is, is something of a contradiction. And I think it is a reflection. This is something I argue sort of in his defense. I mean, he's been, he's been criticized for changing his tune write about diplomacy from the World War II period through the Cold War period. 
But one thing I try to remind the readers is that, you know, it's easy for us living in a very, very different world post-Cold War to look back on a person like Dulles and make those kind of critiques when we don't have to live with those with those changes that went that took place from the 30s to the 50s. We, we don't have to think about nuclear annihilation by the by the Soviets who were, you know, have. I mean, we sort of have to do that now, but it's it's not really something we think about. I mean, you look like you're old enough to remember the 80s and what it was like to, uh, you know, um, live under that threat. I remember in the 80s uh, watching movies like The Day After. My high school had a bomb shelter in it with all kinds of supplies in it and everything. So, you know, we lived through that. We remember that. But a lot of people don't remember that. Um, Dulles was a product of his time. And as a product of his time, he, he had to deal with the very fast pace of the changes that were taking place and the stakes of making a mistake, which were very, very high and perceived in a way in the 50s that we don't really perceive it in, in today's terms. Like today we know a lot more about the effects of a nuclear conflagration than they knew in the early 1950s, really up until maybe 1955, 1956, when people really began to understand these were weapons you really can't use. You know? um, anyway, so that's, that's a lot I've just said there, but uh, I think we need to take those those historical uh, realities in mind and 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 look at those historical dynamics in the face. Yeah, I just had a a few more questions here, and th this sort of ties into the last thing we were talking about with understanding the context of the time, the Cold War, and the decisions Dulles made. And I know you don't really necessarily cover this in uh, this religious biography, although you cover it more in. Uh, American exceptionalism and civic religion. What are we to make of Dulles and his involvement in these sort of secret wars in Central America, Latin America, and, and Asia? Because, I mean, he, he's very committed, uh, at least in, in his mind, to uh, this idea of freedom and democracy. Uh, but he's also involved in sort of overturning these leaders in other countries that are considered leaning towards communism. What are we to make of that? Uh, and what do you think motivates that? That's a great question too. And it's what, it's what Kinzer builds his entire book upon. Um, and it's, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, so you come out of one thing that Kinzer does point out that I think is very helpful in framing kind of how Americans viewed the Soviet Union in the early days of the Cold War. Kinzer says that the Soviets in the popular American imagination, they kind of blended all the worst things about the Nazis and the Japanese. So they were militaristic and expansionistic like the Nazis were, but they were also sneaky like the Japanese were. So the Japanese, they were expansionistic, and, but they weren't militaristic kind of like the, the Nazis were. The Nazis weren't secretive and sneaky like the Japanese were, but you blend those two things and you have the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union was capable of launching a surprise nuclear attack against us that was bent on completely annihilating us. Uh, and short of that, of at least tyrannizing us 
and absorbing us into their empire. That, that was, that's what Kinzer points out. I think Kinzer is absolutely right about that, right? That, that in the late 40s and early 50s, that's how most Americans saw how pernicious the Soviet threat was. Um, now, with regard to the secret war, this was something that uh, Eisenhower and the Dulles brothers both bought into and, and thought this was, the, this was the way to meet the threat of communism. It was a lot better to engage in a secret war, covert operations uh, all over the world than it was to meet the Soviets head on in, a, you know, in some kind of titanic battle on the plains of Central Europe or you know, out there in the, uh, in the steppes of Alaska. Um, it was much better and much cheaper in lives and in money to wage a secret war to uh, um, you know, prevent Soviet, the Soviets or communism to expand into these other nations. It's also fighting fire with fire. Uh, Eisenhower and the Dulles brothers saw that the Soviets were engaged in covert wars, secret wars. So the way, to, the way to deal with that was not to, you know, send an invading army across uh, the plains of Central Europe, rather was to meet, to meet their methods using, using covert methods of our own. So of course they, they pursued that, places like Iran, places like uh, Guatemala, Angola, Indonesia, Southeast Asia, and so forth. So the, the Dulles brothers would have said, we are playing on Soviet ground here. We are doing simply what they're doing. It's hard to argue with that. It's hard to argue with that kind of logic. Um, Dulles was someone who was not a sentimental person. He, he did not, he, he was famous for, I mean, this, is, this, might be a, this might be an apocryphal story about him. I've, I've never really tracked this, this quote down, but Dulles is said to have, to have uttered the phrase, America does not have uh, friends. America has interests. It's kind of like, you know, when, you know, when Tocqueville is misquoted as saying America is good because she's or great because she's good. And when she ceases to be good, she'll cease to be great. Well, Tocqueville never said that, but that's a Tocquevillian statement. You know, America does not have friends. America has interests. Dulles might not have ever said that, but it's a very, it's a statement very consistent with Dulles. <laughs> He's more of a pragmatist, in other words, than a sentimentalist. You just nailed it. You just nailed it. Absolutely. Absolutely. The last thing I want to touch upon, and this goes back again to American exceptionalism and civil religion. There's a very interesting part of your chapter on Dulles. And I I don't know if you can remember all this, but you compare and contrast Dulles and Martin Luther King, actually, in a way, uh, what do you think the sort of differences between how King approaches communism and Dulles? I don't know if you can recall what you wrote in the in the uh, book, sure. but I wanted to touch upon it. Sure. Um, I think with King, King was concerned that um, the United States was lowering itself to the same standards that it accused the Soviets of being. You know, for Dulles, the Soviets were opposed to the moral law and set themselves against it and any nation that stood for it. Well, King seemed to be of the mind that, you know, American foreign policy in the 60s, especially with Vietnam, 
the, the United States has set itself against the moral law too. I mean, he had, didn't say it like that. But, but for King, the United States, because it, he didn't ever call the United States a Christian nation, or at least he didn't do so in a non-ironic way, right? He, he did think that the United States had a special obligation to follow the moral law as exemplified in Christ's ethic, because so much of what informed American ideals came out of the Christian theological tradition. We see that in a letter from a Birmingham jail, for example, in his criticism of the white pastors and criticism of America in the letter from a Birmingham jail. Um, it's interesting because Dulles criticized the sovereignty system in the world in the 30s on the basis that the sovereignty system is almost like a Hobbesian state of nature in which might makes right. And that if a country had the power to obtain uh, its desires, then it had the right to do so. And, and Dulles was very critical of that. Dulles believed that the, that the, the world order should be governed by international law, right? And that nations can't just sally forth in pursuit of their interests just because they have the power to do that. That's exactly what King was gonna be arguing in the late 60s before his assassination. So it's an ironic difference because both King and Dulles, you know, drink deeply from the Protestant liberal tradition. And, and Dulles sounds a lot like King in some ways in the 1930s in his critique of the sovereignty system. But then by the 50s, um, Dulles is proceeding um, in a way that is very, very different, much contrary to what you know, King was arguing later in the 60s, of course, at different time periods. Then King was not criticizing Dulles in the 50s. He was criticizing the United States in the 60s, but his critiques. Well, he was specifically criticizing uh, our, our involvement in wars abroad. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and those would have resonated just fine you know, in, um, in the 1950s when Dulles was Secretary of State. So there's an irony to those differences. And that irony is that, that Dulles would have seen eye to eye with King in many ways. And, and, you know, I'll say this one last thing. Dulles does see eye to eye with King on one very particular thing. And that is that segregation and Jim Crow make the United States look like hypocrites uh, to the Soviets. Here, here we were criticizing them for their human rights violations. What, what were we doing? <laughs> and, you know, uh, Dulles makes a speech to the United Negro College Fund in 1957, where he makes that very point, same point that King had been making. And yet they diverged so, so far from each other when it came to, you know, various aspects and features of American foreign policy. The last thing I'll add with regard to this uh, aspect of our conversation involving uh, King and Dulles is this. You write, uh, in, in analyzing one of King's speeches, you say, uh, but what is perhaps the most striking about King's speech is that in it, he shows himself to be truer to Dulles's method of confronting communism than Dulles was in the way he actually pursued American policy in Vietnam during the 1950s. And then you add uh, a few lines later, King was echoing Dulles's points about how the moral and spiritual principles that defined America were far stronger than its material assets. So 
in a way, there is this point of agreement. They believe that ideas matter. Yeah, no doubt. Absolutely. And that's that's why I call it an ironic difference, because, you know, Dulles, when you listen to King, he sounds a lot like Dulles in, in earlier years. Yeah. So in closing, uh, we've gone about an hour here. I, I hope you have enjoyed the conversation and oh, that it's been illuminating for my listeners. What do you want listeners who may pick up the book after hearing this? What do you want them to get out of the book? And why do you think it's important that we know about uh, Dulles, not only as a diplomat, but as a man of faith? Hmm. Yeah. Okay. There's a couple of things. One, I want us to think historically about Dulles uh, with clear, uh, clear historical thinking. Instead of instead of seeing history as a uh, story of conflict between light and darkness, good and evil, you know, purity and purity and and, and guilt, um, we need to see it as much more complex than that, morally complex. Um, Dulles, uh, uh, he made a lot of mistakes. He believed a lot of wrong things, and a lot of his decisions that came out of his wrong thoughts were tragic and affected the lives of millions of Americans. And those things are to be, you know, studied. And uh, certainly we can, we can draw moral judgment about those things, but it's not really our place um, when we read history to sit in judgment over people of the past who, who are dead. Um, it's, it's more our place to understand where they're coming from and also to tell the truth about what their lives are about. We're truth tellers, we're not, we're not judges when we, when we engage in history. So that's, that's, that's one thing. Um, and so I kind of, you know, that's probably the biggest reason why my biography see, uh, comes across sympathetic instead of like, you know, like a, a Kinzer book that is just absolutely critical. Um, I think Kinzer goes too far in his criticism. I think he's, I think he's a little bit smug in his treatment of Dulles. And I just think that that's inappropriate for a historian. But another thing is that um, here we have a secretary of state who is a deeply religious person and bringing his religion into his understanding of international diplomacy and human nature. I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I think that uh, religion does inform us about what human nature is all about. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm pretty critical of a foreign policy that uh, understands human nature as being basically good I don't think I'm a conservative, so I don't believe that human nature is basically good. I think it's basically depraved. And um, that's why sort of my my diplomatic views are sort of fall in line with Christian realism of the of more the form of of uh, Reinhold Niebuhr than a John Foster Dulles. Um, to take human sin into consideration, when we think about diplomacy and to have a realistic view of human sin. But those things stem from religion. They stem from religious ideas. And we need to take religious ideas seriously and not, not sort of regard religion as just sort of a sentimental, you know, experiential sort of pragmatic way to live life that really has no, no legitimate expression outside of the subject. I think religious ideas are objective in important ways. And I think John Foster Dulles is an example of that. Well, I want to thank you again, John D. Wilsey, for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, let my listeners know how they can get a copy of the book, God Cold, God's Cold Warrior. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor for me to be with you. And you can get God's Cold Warrior on the, um, the Erdman's uh, website. Uh, you can also go to Amazon and order it off of Amazon. 
Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John D. Wilsey, author of God's Cold Warrior, The Life and Faith of John Foster Dulles. As always, if you enjoy the work I put out here at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews one more time. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.